Hey, we are um, going to continue in this short study in the, uh, chapter 11 of uh, the book of John. Last week we opened that scripture up and we were talking about uh, the word coming to uh, Jesus. The word had reached Jesus regarding uh, people that he had loved that resided in Bethany, right? Remember, uh, the, a message had been sent to Jesus from Martha and Mary uh, regarding uh, Lazarus and his condition physically. He was sick. Uh, uh, some translations would say sick unto death kind of thing, right? And uh, so they, they send the word to Jesus. We worked our way through that scripture last week. You know, we touched on several different things. And, uh, but we, we, we kind of finished that scripture last week and uh, where we kind of highlighted uh, the, the emphasis of the scripture was found in verse 14 when uh, Jesus comes clean with the disciples and uh, he, he relieves them of any confusion about the condition of Lazarus. And he just basically comes out, uh, Ronnie, and he makes it really clear and he says, Lazarus is dead. Remember, we mentioned, not mostly dead, but dead, right? We, we, and he goes on, and this is what he says. And he says, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Pretty brave statement. But the word had reached Jesus. Now, what I want to do as we open this scripture this morning, I want to paint a picture for you to understand what is taking place while this message is being carried to Jesus, okay? <clears throat> so let's pray, and then we're going to read this scripture. Um, we're going to work our way through this scripture. Let me just say that this morning. Can we do that this morning? Let's do it. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord, we're looking at this scripture. We want you to speak to us through this scripture. May we see ourselves in it for an application to be made to us. And Father, may we humble ourselves to acknowledge our own tendencies, our own uh, uh, concepts and, and conclusions and, and uh, our thoughts on certain matters and all these preconceived notions we may have, Lord. I pray, Father, that through the reading and the studying of your word this morning, our eyes would be opened our hearts expanded, our faith increased, and our lives be lived out with greater power and much more effectiveness in the arenas in which you've placed our feet. So we bless you this morning, and we thank you for your word, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen, amen. Okay, let, 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 let me try to paint an image for you this morning. Um, and, and you may have, you know, uh, when, when Clark and them were really small, you know, they, they, they watched uh, 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 SpongeBob SquarePants. You know what I'm talking about? And in Sp SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, there was times uh, that uh, he would allude to uh, his imagination. So I'm going to try to convey a, a thought, an image to you this morning, but you may have to use your imagination this morning. SpongeBob will go, imagination. So you're going to have to maybe assist me to some degree in painting this picture for you, okay? All right, here's the idea. 
The idea is that uh, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, becomes ill. We understand that. And there apparently is a decline in his health, uh, a decline to the degree that uh, they have exhausted whatever means necessary for his recovery to take place to the point that they send uh, a message to Jesus, right? And the message they send to Jesus is the one that you love is sick. Operating under the assumption that out of Jesus' love for them, that Jesus would respond. Now what we know by the first scripture we're about to read is that by the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days. Now we know that Jesus stays after hearing this for two days. So we automatically assume then that the traveler with the message travels for one day, delivers the message to Jesus, he stays two more days, that's the third day, and then he makes the one-day trip to Bethany just as the messengers had made the one-day trip to him. Are we on the same page? We're understanding the four days. The implication then is this. The moment they decide to send the messenger out, by the time he breaks the outskirts of town, the sickness that Lazarus was experiencing takes his life. It's the only way we can conclude the four days passing by the time Jesus gets back to Bethany. So you can imagine the desperation. I mean, when they send the message, man, he is sick, sick. Sick to the degree that once they're gone, he dies. I mean, that's where he was at. So they're very desperate. So they send the message out to Jesus. You can imagine Mary and Martha are there and Lazarus dies. The word begins to spread through Bethany. They're a mile, 1.9 miles outside of Jerusalem roughly. 1.87, under two miles. The word spreads to Jerusalem. Many mourners come in. I mean, these people were impactful people. Apparently, uh, uh, their reach was extensive. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been to some of these uh, funerals. I've preached funerals where uh, I barely knew someone. They'd asked me to come in and preach a funeral. And I had no idea of the reach of this individual's life. And I would get down to this funeral home. There'd be three, four, five hundred people down there. And you automatically assumed and you knew you had the, that man, this guy's influence, his family's influence had a long reach, a far reach. I mean, it impacted this many people. So we understand that with these people beginning to gather in Bethany, a multitude, the scripture just says many, number that as you will, you understand the, 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 the reach of, of his life. Now he's dead in, in, in Jewish culture, and Middle Eastern culture. I touched on this last week. When an individual would die, typically the funeral would take place that day. Hence Jairus' daughter. Hence uh, 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 the, the widow of, of Nain. Remember that? Uh, uh, and I touched on that last week that the, Jesus had probably arrived prior to the burial of Jairus' daughter. Jesus was, uh, intervened on the very day of the funeral, the death of the widow's son. And so you can imagine when death comes and everyone floods in there, there is a precedence in day one for Mary and Martha to still hope, right? There is a precedence. They had heard, they had witnessed Jesus arriving and even on the threshold or in the shadow of death and resurrecting people who had just died. 
And you can imagine as the hours begin to count down in that first day, that hope begins to dwindle to some degree. Now the second day arrives, and Jesus still hasn't arrived. Now there is no precedent. No one's been dead two days. More mourners begin to gather into Bethany. Hope begins to faint more and more and more. And then the third day arrives. Hope is gone at that point, right? Hope is gone in the sense of Lazarus being restored. I mean, they at this moment, three days in, man, you're starting to try to assimilate to a new life, right? Many of you who have lost loved ones, you understand, you go through that, that trauma, that initial trauma of that first day or two, and then day three or four goes around. Man, you're making funeral plans. You're having to try to navigate your way now outside of the heartache and the heartbreak, and you're trying to then assimilate to a new life. And so three days now into this, there's, their brother is buried in a tomb hewed out of a mountain, out of an embankment covered with a stone. He's already been there for three days, and now it's the fourth day he's in there. The messenger probably arrived the day after, day two of Lazarus' death, and said, well, I, I got with Jesus. And then day three and day four, and he's never showed up. And that's where we find ourselves. You can take yourselves into that moment, right? And then this is what the scripture says. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews, that's what I was alluding to, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. There's a couple of things that I want you to see right here, right off the bat. And I want you to understand this because the scripture doesn't reveal this till we get later into it. But Jesus doesn't come into Bethany. You understand this, right? Jesus hasn't actually arrived in Bethany. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that when Martha goes to get Mary, that Jesus stays at the place that Martha had met him outside of the village. So the word reaches Martha to some degree that Jesus is on it. He's arrived in the vicinity. She doesn't even wait for him to enter into the city limits, the town limits. She goes out to meet him. She goes... But the scripture says this, but Mary stayed at home. But is a conjunction, right? An adversative particle. It's drawn a contrast to the previous statement. So we need to understand this contrast. One moves with the knowledge that Jesus is close and the other stays. Now whenever we read the scripture about Martha, I know you guys are kind of like I am. Sometimes we go into the scripture when it talks about Martha being the, the, the vigilant worker, the, 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 the busybody. She always gets this bad uh, uh, interpretation or perception. People perceive her uh, as not quite being where Mary is. When in fact, I think this scripture speaks to a completely different reality. 
a completely different reality. And so Martha goes out to the outskirts of the village where Jesus is coming in, right? Upon seeing Jesus, in verse 21 and 22, this is what she says. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Your brother, my brother would not have died. Now, I can understand, because we're all being human and honest here, the feelings, right, Ronnie? Lord, we had counted on, we had depended on your love for him. And you can almost sense, and, and I may be reading into this incorrectly, you can almost sense maybe some displeasure, some correction even, to look at Jesus and say, if you had been here, the one that you love, the one that we love, would not have died. And you can understand that, right? We can understand this. Listen, you got to be on board with understanding this because I've spoken to enough people who have gone through crisis and the thing that typically comes out of their mouths when they go through a crisis is, where was God? So we can sit in a church like this and pretend that's never us, but I've spoken with too many people and I know that's how we are. If we don't even speak it, we have to wrestle through it. And that's a reality. There's nothing sinful about wrestling through an emotion. So we're all on the same page tracking, right? No one's condemning Martha. Understandably making this statement to some degree. But then she catches herself, doesn't she? And let me say this before I even say that. Are you ever shocked at the things that come out of your mouth? You know what I'm talking about? In crisis moments, in conflict. Oh, I know, I talked to Ricky. <laughs> Listen, in conflict moments, you know what I'm talking about, husband, wife? You know the one you love most? You speak to like, eh, maybe not. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever said things to God and you didn't even, you, you didn't even hear it until you spoke it? And the moment you spoke it, I mean, you almost step back like, isn't it funny how sometimes our mouths will expose the conditions of our heart? And we say, man, I love you, Carrie. And then the first time something goes wrong, I look at Carrie and I'm like, bim, bim, bim. I go, I go, oh, uh, uh, Sam on it. You know what I'm talking about? And then I'm like, oh, now put the guns back in the holster. I'm like, Oh, oh, oh. She makes this statement, then she catches herself. Now this is a beautiful expression. And I think this is something we have to look at. At Martha, we have to say, we commend you. I commend you. She says this, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, let me say something before I even open up on that. You know the original statement that she makes to Jesus? Lord, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Regardless of what her motivation was, whether it was displeasure, whether it was correction, whatever the motivation was, you know the reality of the statement is true. Jesus had already said that. Jesus had already said what Martha had just 
proclaimed. If you go back to verse 14 and 15, he says this, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Because I'm going to raise him from the dead so that you will believe. But he basically says, basically says right there, it's a good thing I wasn't there for your sake. Because had I been there, we wouldn't be in this place because my love for them would override my love, my desire to do for them. If they were to, if I were to see that and experience that, I would intervene. How do we know that? Because he intervenes later. He literally says what she stated. Yeah, that's true. Martha knows Jesus. Do you see? She knows the heart of Jesus. And then she says this, what I just read, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, this is, this is an unmatched statement of faith, right? I mean, I've not heard anything like this. In the middle of this crisis, having lost someone, Others had come to Jesus and had made incredible declarations of faith who were in a pending threat of death. But she, on the other side of this situation, on the other side of death, still makes this incredible statement of faith. And it's only incredible because there's an incredible challenge of faith. You see? Now, what I want to say to you is something that I believe to be true. I do not believe what Martha was saying was, I think you're going to speak him back into existence or you're going to raise him from the dead. A lot of times we read into the scripture because we know the back half of the scripture. And so we read it through a prism that's somewhat jaded by knowledge. Why would she think he would raise him from the dead? As a matter of fact, later in the scripture when he has to move the stone away, who objects to that? Martha. She said, oh, no, 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 no. He's been in there rotting away for four days. Nowhere in the scripture does it imply that she's anticipating Jesus raising him from the dead. We anticipate it because we've read it. She's literally making a statement from a heart that is somewhat divided, where she makes this statement, had you been here, you could have intervened, but still, I believe you to be who you claim to be. Whatever God asks, you ask of God, I believe God will do it. I believe that's who you are. You can see this warring, this warring in her spirit almost. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, right, your brother will rise again. Okay. What does that mean? Your brother will, now, now if you're like me and, and, and we're like Martha, she steps into this thing, Jesus makes such a statement she steps back and she says, okay, let me consider the theological application of this. What might Jesus have meant by such a statement? And you think I'm kidding, but that's exactly what she does. That's exactly what she does. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See? She literally steps back. She processes what God has said, 
what Jesus has said through the prism of her theology. And you and I have a tendency in our crisis, in our lives, in our relationships, when we're studying the Scripture, we filter it through our own understanding of who Jesus is. And we, we somewhat uh, uh, encapsulate Jesus. We, we place him in his box. And everything that we hear, read, or study has been influenced by the containment box that we have placed Jesus in. When we live a life where Jesus is confined to our theological restrictions and bounds and, and in our boxes, it typically doesn't end well for us. It limits us. It limits God in our life. But that's what we do. And that's what she did right there. Let me say this. You and I, when we're in these conflicts, when we're in these conflicts, we have got to be able to work through what God's Word says and what everything around us is chattering at us. You understand what I'm talking about? Solo scriptoris, right? Scriptura, right? Only the Scripture. It's Latin for only the Scripture. That is the life by which you and I need to be living our experience. Ultimately, what does the Scripture say? Many of us have embraced uh, doctrines and theolo uh, theologies that are so, uh, so pushed and pressed on us that we can't even navigate through that stuff because we have, we have decided to take the Scripture, view it through that lens, and it just dices everything up. If you were to take the scripture and isolate yourself for any given amount of time outside of the influence of this world and this culture and you were to step out of that closet, having been influenced nothing by the scripture, you would step out of there believing the impossible because the scripture declares the impossible. One of the benefits, Daniel, I experienced in my life, if I may say this, from not being raised in church is that I wasn't too jaded when I came to Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? I didn't have, man, I remember, I remember opening up the Word and begin to read the Word, Kelly, begin to study the Word, and I begin to hear preachers preaching and teachers teaching, and man, there were times I was like, oh, that ain't what that said. We're, and, and I would say something along the lines, uh, how do you come to that conclusion? And they would say, well, our, our position in our, in our uh, 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 denomination is, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I didn't ask that. I didn't ask what your denomination said. I asked, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you arrive there? Well, the manual says, the what? The what? The book of the manual. Is that New Testament or Old Testament? Where's that at? And sometimes that is what's happening to us. And so Mary hears the words of Jesus and she confines them to her theology. Though Jesus has a different intention, she can't see beyond those walls that have been established in her heart, in her mind. And then it says this. 
And Jesus says to her, or he says this, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Spiritually, that is true. And then he says this, do you believe this? That's what he says to her. Man, this, this is a congregation of one, an audience of one. It's Jesus and it's Martha. And he says to her, do you believe this? She alone can answer that question. He doesn't ask, do the mourners believe this? Does Mary believe this? Did Lazarus believe this? He doesn't ask any of those things. He says, do you believe this? Not your husband, not your wife, not your son or your daughter. Do you believe this? Verse 27, yes, Lord. Listen to what she says. After coming to Jesus, making a statement of indifference, she makes this proclamation. Not about resurrecting Lazarus. She makes this statement about Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Even if my brother's dead, I still believe this. That's what she's saying. Do you not get this? It has nothing to do at this point with Lazarus being alive or not being alive. This is a conflict in her spirit, in her heart, but what she truly believes. And Jesus says, do you believe? And she makes a proclamation. I do believe. I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Pistuo. The word believe isn't an intellectual belief. That's the word used for belief here. It's a trusting, and I've spoken on this. And what Jesus was saying to her is, do you pistio? Do you trust me? And she said, I trust you. Why? Because you're the Messiah. You're the Christ who is to come in the world. I trust you. Even if my brother's dead, my trust in you and for you has not been broken or seared. After she had said this, right, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. Now, I want you to get this because sometimes we read through this and I'm going to read it the way we typically read it and then I'm going to read it the way I think it should be read. All right? And you're like, uh-oh, here goes Trent, man, some of that weird stuff. All right? She went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Remember, Martha responded to Jesus on the outskirts of town. Why? Because she had heard that. She comes back into the house and she says to Mary, the teacher is here. Do you not see that? She goes out with hope. Mary stays because she needs certainty. 
Mary and Martha were not at the same place. One's response was completely different than the other. And so Martha comes back as an agent of hope and says to her sister what her sister needs to hear. The teacher is here. It is calling for you. We just assume that Jesus did because she makes this statement, though we don't read that he did. We assume he did. And with the certainty that he's here, she's then moved to action. Blessed are those who see and believe. Blessed even more are those who don't see and believe. You think they're on the same level? You think they're in the same place? The very hope that Jesus could be in the vicinity was enough to move Martha. When Mary sent her posture in such a way, maybe with some indifference towards Jesus, even here he said, that's not enough for me. He's got to be here on my terms. It ain't going to move me out of this house. Our brother's dead, Martha. How dare you move at the very hope that he's here. Now with a certainty, she moves quicker. And she comes to Jesus, right? She comes to Jesus. And this is what the scripture says. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village. But was still at the place where Martha had met him. There's something to be said about that. There's something to be, Jesus hadn't moved any closer. And, Mary, and Martha had already experienced Jesus. Mary could have experienced Jesus out of the same sense. Jesus didn't move any closer in that dynamic. She had to go to the same place that Martha had to go to. But one went there with hope, one went there with certainty. One was moved by faith, the other literally by sight, knowing he was there. <clears throat> and the scripture says this, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now I'm going to paint a little picture, a little bit of difference between the two. Why wasn't the mourners mourning with Martha? When Martha ran out to meet Jesus, why didn't half of them go with her? Or was Mary projecting herself in such a fashion that she was so needy and in such a crisis that they could not leave her? And yet they looked at Martha and said, she can make it on her own. She doesn't need us. Do you think Martha hurt any less than Mary? Do you think Martha needed uh, less comfort? As a matter of fact, I'll say Martha needed at least the same, if not more. Hence, she leaves the mourners to get the greater comfort. But Mary had found comfort in these people. When Martha had found comfort in Jesus. So they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Right? I love the fact that Martha different than Mary, remains a hope agent. And man, they could have wrestled this thing out. They could have thought about this. They could have discussed this or whatever else. But she knew what her sister needed, and she brought her that. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I wonder how many times that very statement had been recited amongst that household of people. Isn't it ironic that it's verbatim, word for word, the very same thing that Martha had said? The only difference in this moment is she doesn't come behind that with a declaration of faith saying, but... I still believe like Martha had. You might say the same thing. It doesn't mean you're in the same place. Martha comes out, makes this same statement. This is the reason it shapes up differently. Okay? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Embrimayo may. The Greek word, and it means to be angry with the notion of coercion. Did you realize that? That Jesus' response in that situation, whether it was coercion from Mary or whether it was coercion from the Jewish mourners that were with her, the word for, 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 for uh, uh, that, that, that anger, it literally implies in the Greek to snort. Have you studied this? It means to literally snort with anger. Oh, that's not the picture of Jesus we want painted on Sunday morning. Come on, man. Give me the sweet Jesus. Blue eyes. Nice skin. Well-groomed. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. And now here's the invitation. Remember, he's on the outskirts of town. Come and see. Lord, they replied. And in that moment, the shortest scripture in all the scripture. We've, you know, I love when I say to people, hey, what's your favorite verse? They say, oh, man, I love that verse. I'll John. I memorized that one. What is it? You know, Jesus wept. Oh, you put a lot of time in that one. It took hours of study. But there it is. Jesus wept. The, the merger, the blending of the fabric of God and man in one person. What he knew he was going to do yet subject to human responses, human heartache, human emotions, and Jesus weeps. And it's not the wailing that you would, that you would read in other... It's a, it's, a, it's a gentle weeping. It's a quiet, a reserved weeping. It's a silent weeping. And then the Jews said this. Man, see how he loved them? But then some of the Jews said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Notice that they didn't say, well, he can raise them from the dead. After four days, there's no precedent, precedent for that, right? They didn't say that. But they knew the fact that he had healed people. Well, couldn't he have done that? Couldn't he have healed him? You know what they were basically, some of, those, some of those people were saying, man, look how Jesus loves them. And somebody else was like, no, no, he doesn't love them. Look at the pain you're going through. You got people like that at work? You start to testify about how good God's been to you, and they, won't, they don't want to acknowledge the things God's done for you, Daniel. They'll just point out, what do you mean he loves you? Last month I had to help you pay your electric bill. And you're like, I know, and God used a jackass like you to do it. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, praise be to God for that. Right? Right? 
So you can see these, these battling Jews, man. He loves them, he does it. He loves them, he does it. But there is something being communicated that's not being said. Okay? They say he loves them, he doesn't. But there's a dead silence amongst 12 men that are in that group. And you're like, where are those cats at? Where are they at? What are they thinking? They may have been thinking the very same thing. Half of them may have been thinking, oh man, Jesus loves them. The other half may have been thinking, but he could have saved them. We could have gotten here. We wasted two days. But they're dead silent. Dead silent. Jesus once more, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. And there was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now listen, you guys know this. I've alluded to this before. Those of you who have talked to me about this scripture, I always love to reference Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. Many of us have seen Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, right? You've seen it, Robert Powell? I know some of you are like hardcore chosen people, and you're like, oh, no, it's Jonathan Rumier. It's not Jesus, right? But if you want to go back and you want to watch Jesus of Nazareth, there's a beautiful depiction of this scene that's being played out. And there's a hillside, and there's a, a cave that's been hewed right into that, that embankment. And all the disciples and John, James, all the boys are gathered at a distance. And you understand why they're gathered at a distance, right? If Jesus is going to remove the stone, it's going to stink. Why do I want to be so close to a stinking tomb? Not only is it stinking, it's unclean for a Jewish person. So in Zephyrelli's depiction, they're standing up on this hillside and they're looking down into this cavernous hole where this cave has been hewed into the side of the mountain and they roll away that stone and the only person standing down there is Jesus. It's a beautiful image. And that's where we are right here. And Jesus says, take away the stone. Move the stone. But Lord said Martha, now, Martha's the hinge piece in this whole scripture. The sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor for he has been there for four days. And I reference the King James. The King James so eloquently uh, uh, uses the same vernacular that I use. He stinketh. He's odiferous. Right? By this time, there's a bad odor for he has been there for four days. Now listen, when Jesus says, move that stone, what do you think John's thinking? Probably what Martha's thinking. They hadn't seen it either, right? What's Peter thinking? You don't hear him say anything. He said, move the stone! That's not what, you don't hear that. James, Master, you want me to go down and move it? You don't hear that. Judas back there counting change. Not, maybe not even engaged in what's happened. I don't know. What we do know is nothing's being said by them. But they're all there. 
And there is Jesus. And he says to Martha, move the stone. And she has enough influence over the situation that she can dictate whether the stone is moved or not moved. Martha. Most theologians think she's the older sister. That's the reason the scripture says that it's in, it's in Martha's house that they found rest and, and food and nourishment. It was at Martha's, not Mary's house. Mary being the younger. But Lord, said Martha, man, we always have those objections, right? When Jesus is wanting access into those hewed out places in our life that really do stink, we always have some type of a objection to that, don't we, Ronnie? When, when Jesus comes to Ronnie and says, Ronnie, I need in that room where your bad attitude rely, uh, uh, exists. I need, I need in that, that bad attitude room. And you're like, Lord, it's too, it stinks in there too much. You don't want it in there. And you know what Jesus says? Oh, Ronnie, that's exactly where I want to be. But the reality is the vast majority of the time it isn't the fact that we're afraid that Jesus is going to see the stink. We know that Jesus already knows about the stink. You know what we're really afraid of? We're afraid if everyone else sees and smells and hears the stink. And so we've got that cave, we've got that, that stone. I mean, that thing's locked down. My reputation's on the line. I can't let people know about that. And Jesus is saying, if you want it healed, if you want it mended, if you want it resurrected, if you want it restored, you got to let me into that stinky, stinky, stinky area. But what if they see, Lord? What if they hear? What if they smell? It's an unfit place, Lord, for you to be. And I believe the heart of Jesus would say to us, the stinky areas of our life are an unfit place for us to stay. Amen. And Martha says, take away the stone. Now this is the moment, man. This is the moment. I mean, this thing, the energy level is off the hook. In this moment, we have a conflict between life and death between the claims of a man to be God in the flesh and the reality of a dead man's body. Every person in there, in that area, every disciple, follower, believer of Jesus, in that moment you have to believe that their faith is somewhat vexed with the uncertainty of what's going to happen. You know what I'm talking about. You know when you become afraid, afraid to pray for people? What if God don't answer? Afraid to anoint someone? What if God doesn't answer? You know what I'm talking about. And you can see Peter and them, you can almost imagine them saying, oh man, let's, let's just kind of move on. They've already gotten used to him being dead, Jesus. Why bother? He's been dead for four days. Let's just move on. They done, they done got the insurance. You can see it, right? You can see it. They've already learned to live with death. Just let them be. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you? Who? Martha. He's not talking to anybody. He's not talking to Mary. He's not even talking to the disciples. He's not talking to anyone but Mary. 
He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you ever thought that you might be the hinge by which someone else's experience may be dependent on whether or not you trust, you believe, you follow? And Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. <laughs> did I not say if you trust me, did I not say if you trust me, you can hear Jesus speak that, and as Jesus is speaking it, you can almost see Martha saying, move the stone, move the stone, move the stone. Every time he says, you, 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 move the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, you could feel it. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Why did he call in a loud voice? I would, I would, I would suggest to you that it was probably because the people were at a distance. They had removed themselves in elevated places. And he wanted them to know exactly what the source of this coming out party was about. It wasn't some conjuring of magic. It wasn't some uh, soothsaying. It wasn't some uh, uh, you know, uh, bait and switch type dynamic. He says in the people's hearing with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now in those seconds, in those seconds, the faith of every man, woman, and child in that vicinity, in that arena, was literally everyone's faith breath was being held. Everyone gazing on the entryway into this tomb. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Everyone's eyes are fixed in the darkness. And I'm not saying everyone was from or standing in the exact same position. Everyone had the same angle. But think about the individual who had the best angle from a distance, who could make out the first movements within the darkness of the cave. And you can imagine, Jojo, what do you see? Something's going on in there. There's a man coming out. I see a man move. And then you can almost imagine as that wave of, of just paralyzing reality of a dead man being resurrected sweeps across that many, that large group of people paralyzing them. With disbelief, you can imagine even the disciples standing there in awe of what they have seen. They have never witnessed a man risen, resurrected from the grave who had been dead before. They hadn't seen this. 
And I suggest to you, they were completely paralyzed in disbelief of what was taking place. As Lazarus comes forth. Why do I believe that? Because then Jesus has to tell them, unwrap the man. Can you imagine people shuffling down from the hillside, scurrying in like a bunch of mice to get to them? Can you imagine the person that unwraps the first linen off his face to see him look at the man who's unwrapping the linen? What if it was Martha who scurries down to the open face of this cave where a man stands who is completely wrapped in death linen? And she starts from his face and begins to unwrap him only to see the eyes of a living man piercing into her own eyes. But the impact's even greater on one who is more reluctant to come. And it's the younger sister, Mary. Because the next time we see Mary... Instead of being at the feet of Jesus, accusing him of why, why did you not show up? She's back at the feet of Jesus with tears streaming down her face and her hair washing his feet. I don't like to have seen Mary when the linens come off. It was no longer the fitting of a living man to be dressed and a dead man's clothes. So you and I, we've had this experience with Jesus. He's come into our lives. He's changed our lives. He's impacted our lives, completely altered and transformed them. And we wonder why the old stuff doesn't fit anymore. It's no longer befitting for a son or a daughter of God to dress in such a manner, to live in such a manner. It no longer fits you. Quit trying to make it fit and take it off, man. Take off your attitudes. Take off your dispositions, your criticism. Take off the, the long tongue of gossip. Take these things off, man. Take off the bitterness and the unforgiveness. Take that stuff off. It doesn't fit anymore. I've not been to too many funerals like that. But those of us who trust in Jesus will be a part of a funeral like that one day. We'll all be a part of a funeral like that one day. When we too will be resurrected. That same voice that spoke to your mother, Jaylen, that same voice that spoke to Lazarus, Lazarus will speak to Trent Evans. One day that voice will be speaking to me. Trent Evans, come forth. And I'm going to come forth. And you too can come forth. That's the message of the gospel.
Stand with me this morning. This is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to ask Brandon if he would come. Danny, if you would come. These guys are going to get the elements. We're going to take communion this morning. Listen, if you're a visitor this morning, if you're a visitor, but you belong to Jesus, then I invite you to be a part of the communion service this morning. You don't have to be a part of the TDC family. You don't have to be a part of it. If you're a part of the kingdom, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is yours. This is yours. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to start on the outside. It's like we always do. If you're new here and you have no idea, let somebody just grab your hand. They'll just lead you around. We'll work this out. We'll start on the outside from the front to the back. We'll go down the middle. Go back to your seats. Keep your elements. We're going to take these elements together this morning. Amen? And if God is speaking to you this morning about maybe dropping some stuff off, now when you come up here and you grab these elements... Man, this is a good place to drop some of that stuff off. Take some of that linen off. You know, you see? Okay. Father, in Jesus' name, we bless you this morning. Lord, there are times in our lives we do confess that we are stretched so thin in our crisis at times because we've become so dependent on ourselves. That we dare look at you, but we do with displeasure, thinking, oh God, you should have done more. Only to bring those thoughts into captivity, as your word says. To rein those things in that they will not dominate our lives. And bring them, as your word says, into submission to Christ Jesus. Father, I pray in those times when our flesh rises up that our spirit, man, better fed, better nourished, would rise up in that moment of conflict to champion your cause in our lives. So, Father, we come this morning, we come to remember, to take the elements, to remember your sacrifice, to remember what you've done, to remember and to thank you and to thank you. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. These are beautiful people, Lord. These are your people. These are beautiful people. I pray, oh God, that you would bless them this morning, each person, each person whose heart is just torn, each person who's in a crisis, each person who has conflict at every corner, each person, Lord, who is thin this morning. I pray that you would just reach your arms out and draw them into you. Oh, God, for a season of rest, that they would find their spiritual footing in you. They would find themselves trusting, not just believing, but trusting you. So, Father, I bless them, and I thank you for what's about to happen. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask this. Amen.